history Rebbe Leiwais, lecture number 43. We talked about yesterday the Greeks, and now um, Alexander the Great, and, and now here's the story. Alexander comes and demands a tax from the Kohen Gadol, who's a fellow by the name of Yudoa. Shimon Tzadik is not yet Kohen Gadol, that's coming. Um, now, and Yudoah refuses to pay Alexander the Great, which from the Greek mentality was something that you did not do. Um, Yudoah's mind was, the way he was thinking about it, was he feared the Persian power still, which had not yet succumbed to the Greek force. He feared that Daryavish, the, the Persian emperor, would see if Yudoah paid taxes to Alexander, that this was kind of rebellion. You could see how these kinds of things, these triangular uh, conflicts would get, would get kind of messy. Um, what we know, in the end, Daryavish himself would later wind up fleeing from Alexander, and he would be killed by his own soldier. So the Persians would fall to the, to the, to the Greeks, but in trying to appease the Persians, what Yudoah wound up doing was um, not only alienating the Greeks, but infuriating the Greeks. And um, then our enemies saw an opportunity. You remember Sanballat and the, the Shomronim, the Kutim. Um, they, they come in and they come, first of all, what you do with new kings is you present them with very generous gifts. And they presented a whole array of gifts. And then they told Alexander, what you king should do is destroy the base Hamikdash, destroy the temple. Remember, the temple's not been around uh, quite so long yet and they're already angling to have it destroyed. Um, and they say to him, Jews will not allow an RL like yourself inside anyway. And RL is a pejorative term for an uncircumcised one. And they're, they're not gonna allow somebody like you, Alexander, into, uh, into the base of Mikdash anyway. And if you wanna get a power hungry demagogue uh, upset, so you tell somebody like Alexander the Great, you know, there's a place you can't go, you know. Your kind not allowed. We don't accept you in our country club. And now Alexander was, was uh, indeed furious. Now, generally speaking, when Alexander, Alexander is this fierce warrior. We described him already yesterday as being somebody uh, who was stout, short, and, uh, and, and, and really no-nonsense. Yeah, he was short, but, but ferocious. And, and nobody, everybody was intimidated by him. And, but when he went to conquer a people, he was generally not genocidal, not particularly murderous. By the time he had really made a name for himself, most of his conquests were relatively peaceable because the people just didn't want trouble, so they just surrendered. And when they surrendered, he accepted them as subjects. So he was, I mean, at least in his initial conquest, that was the way he did it. Uh, here, now, uncharacteristically, Alexander sets out, he's going to destroy Yerushalayim Yerukodesh, and he's doing it with a vengeance. And Klal Yisrael are sitting inside the gates of Yerushalayim, Yush the, the, the and they are terrified, and they fast, and they offer special korbonos, and they don't really know what to do. And there's a great figure inside, Mi Shiare Anshe Haknesis Agadola. We've seen most of the great, the men of the great assembly have indeed died out. Um, but the single survivor, Shimon Ben Chonio, is his name, otherwise known as Shimon Hatzadik. Uh, the street the yeshiva, our, our yeshiva is on is Shimon Hatzadik Trik because just down the way is the traditional gravesite for Shimon Hatzadik. And it could be. Is that accurate? It could be, is the way I like to phrase it. It's one of the oldest traditions that we have. Uh, the earliest 
uh, the earliest testimony that that is Shimon Tzadik, or that area is Shimon Tzadik, perhaps those caves themselves, um, comes from a student of the Ramban, who uh, that would be that would be then in the late 13th century. Um, that's pretty old, been around for a while. Doesn't mean that he was the first to go there. It's just the, it's the, mo- it's the earliest of what we have on record is somebody testifying that that's the place. And it's entirely plausible and reasonable that it would be in the vicinity of Jerusalem. Makes a lot of sense that it's outside the uh, city walls from the times of the Second Temple. Were any of you with me in the museum last Tuesday, exactly a week ago today? We went around. Do you remember we got outside and there was this great model of late Second Temple Jerusalem? And I described how, I think maybe Zev was standing there, maybe you were standing there, Aaron. That, uh, that there were, uh, the gates were, he, you know, the third wall was over there, here's where yeshiva is. And so, you know, pl- plausibly, you didn't bury inside the city limits, but that you would bury outside the city limits, perhaps right over there, uh, certainly is log- logical. But notice my tentative language, we don't necessarily know more. There is a secondary source that the Arizal authenticated it, but we don't find that in Rav Vital. And Rav Chaim Vital is the authority on all the identified graves of his Rebbe of the Rizal. And if he didn't say it, there's reason at least to question it. Um, I don't think there's, unlike some of the other Kivrei Tzidikim, where there are multiple contenders for the throne. You know, there are about eight different Kivrei Shmuel Hanavi all around, uh, all around uh, Eretz Yisrael. Um, this is the only one that I know of that's supposedly Shimon Hatzadik. So it could be. It could be. So he now is, um, he is the Gadol Hador. He is the... Uh, some consider him the first Tana, although generally that's not, that's pretty early to already consider this, the Tana Itik period. You know what I, say, what, I mean, what, I, what I mean when I say Tana? Tana means uh, somebody from already the period of the Mishnah. Now he's certainly part of the process that leads to the Mishnah, so it's reasonable. He's one of the early Chachamim in the sense of the word that, you know, this new phase, this post-prophetic um, stage. But okay, enough Gamina, there's no, there's no real difference. He is considered uh, certainly one of the great sages of all time. He'll eventually be Kohen Gadol, but not yet. Uh, remember, there's another one, Yedoah. He himself was the great, great, great grandson of Yehoshua, who was the original Kohen Gadol when they came back from Bavel. He, uh, therefore, is related to Ezra. Others say that really the period of the Tanaim starts much later with the end of the Zugos with Hillel and Shammai. That seems to be the more the accepted view. Now, it's kind of interesting his name, Shimon Hatzadik. It's not the name that he, you know, he didn't introduce himself to her. Hello, Shimon Hatzadik, the name, nice to meet you. Uh, he actually would have bristled at the notion, you call me Simon the Righteous? That's, that's what chutzpah, what gaiva, what arrogance. Um, Chazal later referred to him as Shimon Hatzadik, and nobody else has that name. Nobody's called, I mean, Rabbi Akiva was a tzaddik, but they, we didn't call him Akiva Hatzadik. He's called Shimon Hatzadik because he has an eponymous namesake. That was, a, that was uh, uh, redundant. Uh, he has somebody of the same name, Shimon ben Chonio, a descendant of his, who's a big Russia. And because it's easy to confuse Shimon ben Chonio with Shimon ben Chonio, Chazal got in the habit of calling him Shimon Hatzadik. He was the righteous one compared to the wicked one. That's where the name comes from. At the time when Alexander was about to conquer Jerusalem, again, he's not a Kohen Gadol, and he took the extraordinary uh, measure, this is all from the Gemara and Yuma, of dressing himself in the eight big day kahuna, the eight garments of the Kohen Gadol, 
which is ordinarily usur and a very serious usur, but he did what was called a horat sha'ah, an emergency measure, and it was legitimate. Chazal can do those kinds of things. Don't try this at home, kids. Uh, it's called a horat sha'ah. You need to be a supreme authority to take such things into your hands. But pikuach uh, nefesh, the life and death kind of situation that the that Klai Yisrael find themselves in, certainly justify that. We're in the first class. This is my history class. Oh, it's the first class now? It's the first class. I know, everything's thrown off today. We're not doing old plan. Yeah, I know. It feels like old plan. I know. The, um, he leaves the city of Jerusalem. It's a really dramatic scene. He's, got, he's surrounded by what are called Yekira Yerushalayim, the whole the nobility, the high important people of Jerusalem. Through the night, they march out to a place called Antipatros. Later, it'll call it Antipatros. It wasn't back then. Um, which is, how, how's your geography of Eretz Israel? It's identified as an area not far from the Yemenite city, predominantly Yemenite city of Rosh Ha'ayin, near the airport. In the area of the airport, there's a, there's a whole place you can go and visit today. It's a figures, interestingly, through history, water source of Yerushalayim in many times. In any case, they go out to Antipatros, and as they approach, certainly picture the image, you know, Shimon Tzadik walking with the big day kahuna and the entourage on foot, very bravely going to meet their sworn enemy. When Alexander on horseback sees them approaching, he asks, who's that? The Shomronim, the Kutim, are the bad guys, were always the bad guys, they always seem to be around just at these times when we're, when, we, when we're weak and we're down. The Shomronim today, oh, oh, they're walking into your hands, king. These are the rebellious Jews that we were telling you about. And then Alexander's eyes, do you know the story? Oh, yeah. The very famous story. His eyes fall on the face of Shimon Atzadik, and he does the utterly unexpected. He dismounts and he prostrates himself. He bows down, full body bowing down on the floor to Shimon Atzadik. And that's not what everybody's expecting. They thought there was going to be a bloodbath. They certainly don't expect that the new king of the world is going to uh, be subordinate to the Jew, Shimon Atzadik. And his ministers are mortified. The Shomronim are horrified. They don't, know what to, they don't know what to say. And they ask him, what's going on, Alexander? And he explains, every single time I went out to battle, I had an image of a face that appeared to me to assure my victory. And it was that man's face. Uh, the explanation is that it was a malach that went down with the face of Shimon Tzadik as a way of uh, Hashem's chesed in trying to help us. And that's the way Alexander conquered the world. And Alexander turns to Shimon and he says, whatever you desire, what would you like? So Shimon has this great comeback line. Do you know this part of the story? It's a great line. He says, he says, um, really one of the best ways of uh, best examples of diplomacy in the ancient world he says is it possible that the house where we pray for the success of your monarchy that you should survive <coughs> that you should survive that um that this house could be slandered and then subject to, to destruction at your hands you're Alexander, you melt at the charm of the man, right? And I was like, okay, whatever you want, Shimon. Is it possible that this happens? And Alexander is so taken with Shimon that he says, no, I me destroyed. I wasn't, did you hear rumor that I was going to destroy Jerusalem? That wasn't me. He says, who slanders Jerusalem? Who slanders your great house, Shimon? 
And Shimon said, and it's, it seems like we just ripped a page from the Megillah, right? Esther's finger pointing, as it were. Shimon said, oh, you know, those Shomronim, those Kutim over there, who do a Haman on the spot, and they shrink. And they say, oh, no, not us. And that's, that's the scene. That's the scene. Immediately, Alexander has his henchmen kill off the present Shomronim. They go up to the Shom- eternal Shomronim capital. Do you know where that is? Have I mentioned where that is? I think I have. In top of a mountain, which mountain? It's the mountain of Bracha. When the Jews first came into Eretz Israel, called Har Grizim, Mount Grizim. It's in Har Grizim where today you'll find the descendants of the same Kutim, uh, and that's one of the trips I want to take you on. I mentioned we talked about the Kutim somewhat. No, I mentioned that they are today four hundred. Excuse me, seven hundred and forty-two. And then I add always, usually afterwards. I haven't checked the obituary section this morning, so I can't vouch for the, uh, the uh, accuracy of that number, but um, they're very small. They used to number in larger numbers. This was a terrible defeat for them, and Alexander sends his men up to Mount Grizim to destroy their fortress, uh, the one that was built by Sanballat. It, it's ransacked, and it's exactly, Kaddish Baruch Hu has his way in this world, Mida Kineged Mida, measure for measure, just like they conspired to have to destroy Jerusalem, so in the end, their own fortress is destroyed. Um, it's interesting. Who is Alexander? There's a medrash by Iker Rabbah that tells us that Alexander blesses Hashem, and by blessing Hashem, he joins the rank of other non-Jews who perceived the godless, the Kedusha of the Kaddish Baruch in the world. He's up there with Ebed Avram, who's sometimes called Eliezer. We just had him in Parsha. He's up there with Yisrael, Moshe's father-in-law. Uh, we're going to hear another story of a certain Yishmaeli, uh, 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 descended from Ishmael, who will sell a donkey to Shimon ben Shetach. All of them, the common denominator is they, they know enough to see God's miracles in the world and bless Hashem. Alexander comes back as Shimon's personal guest to Yerushalayim. He gets a tour around Harabais, and Alexander decides, I'm going to do something wonderful. The Jews will love me. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you build a big pestle. A big statue of me, right there in the center. I'm going to let you, he says. Um, talk about another diplomatic awkward moment. Uh, right between what's called the Heichal and the Mizbeach, can you picture, we just, we just were together by the Temple Institute, can you picture the model of the Besam Mikdash? The Heichal, the big temple itself, and the Mizbeach, the big altar right outside. You're going to put plop right in the middle there, a big statue of me, Alexander. So Shimon uh, mustered his, again, once, once more his diplomatic strength, and he tells him, well, actually, we're not going to do that. Hashem doesn't allow that, of course. Uh, but tell you what we're going to do. We are going to every newborn baby Cohen this year will be named Alexander. And somehow he gets away with it. And Alexander's a piece. Okay, I can, I can, I can take that. And what's interesting is Alexander has been a name used by Jews. It's hard for me to say it's a Jewish name, but it's a name used by Jews from that time till the present. Alexander. There you go. There you go. There have been some holy Alexanders over the history, so this is, this is where that practice uh, started. In fact, he does something more. Remember how we keep changing the calendar and from when we count, what, what our orientation is? And, and we, we started counting from uh, Yitzhak Mitzrayim and then when Shlomo built the base of Mikdash, they started counting what's called the Minyan Ashtaros, the way they would sign the documents in, 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 in business dealings. Um, so now he starts the Minyan Ashtaros 
from the time that Alexander comes to Jerusalem as another way of honoring Alexander and appeasing him, really. Um, it happens to be the year that Alexander conquers Jerusalem, which we date, which we date in about 312 before the Common Era. According to, according to the Goyish calendar, it's 333. If you look at your timelines, anyway, 312 by the, uh, by the non-Jewish calendar. Um, that's, when, that's when he comes in, and, um, and that's exactly 1,000 years, 1,000 years after Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. And there's significance. Whenever there's a round number, you have to darshan it. You have to say, okay, that's, first of all, it's not a, it's not a coincidence. Kedosh Baruch willed this into being. Clearly, there's, a, there's something going on. And a uh, thousand years exactly, there's some, this is a turning point in history. And that's mm, somewhat okay. After all, Alexander spares us. And mostly really terrible as the story, as the plot thickens, and you kind of know where, where the story is going. When Alexander comes in, and those of you who were here yesterday, and we talked about the Greek civilization, so too does all the Greek schmutz, and all the civilization, and all of the trappings, the philosophy, and the culture will also enter Yerushalayim, Erechodesh. Yeah. BCE. BC is a term used by Christians. We try to avoid that. So BCE is, is a, it's a secular terminology too, it's a secular calendar, but before the common era is at least a little more paruth and therefore a little more to our liking. Yeah. Uh, the king is appeased. He actually donates generally to what's called Bede to the upkeep of the base of Mikdash. And um, also another unusual uh, thing, they actually bring Korbanos in his name. That's with under the uh, Hora'ah, the, teach, the, uh, the guidance of the Kohen Gadol. Now, um, Alexander becomes the king of the world, as it were, and each nation, Gemara and Sanhedrin tells us, makes a case before the king that Eretz Israel is theirs. See, the uh, Ishmael comes forward, and the Canaanites come forward, and the Egyptians say, hey, the Jews robbed us blind, each one claiming their historical claims against Qal Israel that it's ours. Alexander won't hear any of them. He's, he's loyal to the Jews. Um, you know, that's why, in a sense, we have a certain affinity, not quite affection, but a certain appreciation for Alexander. He was relatively kind to us. Um, he's certainly much kinder than later Greeks. Uh, that's the way he was with us. Um, after the defeat up on Mount Gerizim, so Sanballat is still alive. Sanballat is one of the agitators, one of the Jewish enemies. And he, he's a master manipulator, and he manages to ingratiate himself with Alexander and finally gets permission to build a new fortress up on Mount Gerizim. And pay attention to that. I keep pointing to the north because that's where it was, uh, behind, behind where you're sitting, not far from here. I mean, far enough. It's about an hour, hour and 15-minute drive, but uh, relatively close. And, um, and he gets permission. And they build a fortress up there, and that's going to be a snare to the Jews. It'll be a stumbling block. Uh, it'll be destroyed in the end, but maybe too late. Um, Alexander rules a total of 12 years. He, as we said, nice to the Jews in his personal manner, brutish, self-serving, uh, really a foul individual as a person, as a human being. He actually tried to elevate himself as a god. And when he turned uh, 32 years old, he was poisoned to death, as was the way in the ancient world. Not surprising death for such a powerful demagogue. Civil war, when he dies, takes over the Greek Empire. And uh, what happens is the Greek Empire splits into good Yetzirah, four divisions, which was anticipated in. Anybody remember where we saw that? Is not the first time I mentioned that? 
No, in, yeah, in the statue, very good. In the statue, because the statue comes from the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and then they're confirming dreams of Daniel as well, the four Malthios, and then the Greek Empire will have four subdivisions, which is pretty much the duration of the Greek Empire. They're, they're really, what does it mean, they're four subdivisions? They are, in general, you can look at this Greek period, in general, Greece runs the world, uh, it's all Greek to me. The... Uh, Go ahead. What's called in English Ptolemy, or in Hebrew Ptolemya. They're called the Seleucids. Selvekim in Hebrew. Seleucids. Right. Macedonians. Very good. Very good. And who's, who's the fourth? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Philip. The, 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 the Philip in Macedonia and Greece. Those are the four. Uh, it's called, oh, excuse me, Philip in Macedonia and Greece. And then you, I don't know if you said this, Antigonus in Persia and Asia, off, off in the east. They're the fourth. Okay, so there are four, there are four divisions of this new empire. What I started to say is, yes, there are four divisions. That's a political reality. But they're kind of unified. The culture is the same. Most of what we talked about yesterday in terms of the Greek culture permeates most of the world. So there's a lot of interplay. There is enmity. They, they battle each other for supremacy in the rest of the world. And we're going to be, we in Eretz Israel are going to go back and forth. And the reason why, right, between the two that we've been mentioning, the Egyptian, the Ptolemies in Egypt, the Seleucids, the Seldekim up in Syria uh, are going to be vying over the Middle East. Um, Generally, we like the Selvekim, the, the, the Seleucids. They're better for the Jews than the Ptolemies, who are, we're going to see a disaster mostly. And initially, we fall under the good guys' reign. We're, we're under the Seleucid reign. Um, Ptolemy actually means war in Greek. Um, he's, they all have that same name. Ptolemy. They're all the same name. Kind of like Pharaoh. Paro is always the same name. And we've seen, we've seen a few kings, kings like that. Or Caesar. Um, eventually, Ptolemy expands his turf. He takes the Negev, you know, the Negev in the south of Eretz Yisrael. He eventually conquers the northern areas. Uh, he'll eventually go up to Asher itself and conquer it. Um, and he comes to Yerushalayim, and it's a Shabbos, and he pretends to be peaceful. And when he swoops down in the city, he immediately takes 120,000 Jews captive back to Egypt. Uh, Egypt, already we remember, is there is a community. It's been in exiles all the way back since the days of Chizkiyahu um, and Melech, and arguably earlier. And um, and he takes he takes all those Jews down to Egypt to make a very large diaspora, not nearly the size of Babel, but it's 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 up there. Uh, he destroys the walls that Nehemiah not that long ago built that we just celebrated, and he persecutes the remaining Jews in Jerusalem. So immediately we go from a, a period of I wouldn't say it's light. The second temple was never really easy going, but it's relative good under Shimon and Sadiq, and um, and it, it becomes a, it becomes a bitter time. They uh, he he will rule the land for thirty years. He's cruel. The Jews under the Greeks begins slowly, and then it picks up speed to stray. They stray after the seductive Greek culture. We mentioned this yesterday. They become, they become influenced by the Kutim, by the Shomronim. And the Shomronim also become influenced by the Greeks. Now that's complicated, what I just said, no? But what it really, all it means is that all these cultures overlapped and started adopting this kind of um, common denominator culture, which was really, as it were, dominated by the Greeks. The uh, Greek language is now so dominant. How do we know it's dominant? We know that the currency 
for Bedek Abayis, for the, for the base of Mikdash, they came from as far as Naharda and Bavel and from Ammon and Moab and Egypt and Madai. They're all, most of the money that we find from this period is written in Greek characters from all over the world. Just to show you, I mean, maybe this doesn't strike you as very, very um, surprising. Today, after all, we're alive in the period of the internet where English seems to have not conquered the world, but as a, as a common language, as a common culture. They, people talk about it as the um, Golden Arches culture, or the Coca-Cola culture for that matter, where there's a certain cultural hegemony that's, uh, that, that the West, and particularly America, holds sway in the world today. I think that's the way you can think about the Greek civilization as well. Different political entities, a similar common denominator of a way of life. Now, around this time, Shimon replaces his grandfather, Yedoa, and his father, Honya, as Kohen Gadol, He's Kohen Gadol for 40 years. They're described as glorious years, right? His years are glorious years that coincide with the rise of Talmi. Okay, so politically it's bad, but Shimon Tzadik is great and good to the Jews. He is the only Kohen Gadol to ever simultaneously lead uh, the Jewish people and also be the Avbastian and the Sanhedrin. Uh, doesn't always work when you can wear two crowns, and, and, and he does. He's not the king, but he's certainly the Torah, the Torah giant. Um, we know that under Shimon, this is from the book of Ben Sirach, under Shimon the base of Mikdash is renovated, which means, for, uh, I mentioned this on the tour last week, the second temple was initially built in a bare bones kind of a style. Uh, it was whatever they could put up. Uh, it was with the guidance of the prophets, but that's what they could do. Shimon will do the first renovations, There'll be future renovations under the Hashmonaim and final renovations, most famously under Herod. Herod. So those are the four stages, as it were, of the second temple. So now, now Shimon upgrades the base of Mikdash. He, during his time, will shecht two paradumas. There's a very famous episode in the Gemara Numa, where on Yom Kippur, we know there's this, remember there's a part, there's a time when um, the Kohen Gadol goes into Davin for Klal Yisrael, and everybody's, in, everybody's outside waiting expectantly how to go, and he took a really long time, because he loved Klal Yisrael, and when he came out, finally, they, said, they, they were relieved, and they said, they rebuked him, they said, you know, you made us all so concerned, we thought something bad happened to you. In fact, when he emerged, they were so relieved. Do you know which words they said? Famous part of the liturgy and actually a well-known song. They said, Emes Manehedar. They said, it's true, how wondrous. Emes Manehedar, Haya Kohen Gadol. When the Kohen Gadol emerged, Mibesa Kodshe Kodoshim, the, the, um, the verses in Ben Sirach describe this. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know the song? I know the version, that I, I think this is the most beautiful version of the song. It's done that, I think it's London's Pirche sings this one. Uh, we sang it when Rabbi Rose got on the bus in Tiberia. Remember that Tiol that he had to like get off because he was a Kohen, can't go through Tiberia. So these words were originally sung with, with the, uh, with the, think with, you know, with, with the uh, concentration on Shimon Tzadik himself. Um, in fact, there's a pasuk that reads, like the image of the rainbow inside of the cloud. That was the visage of the Kohen Gadol, um, <coughs> as, as, we, as we say it till today. I, always get very, I don't know about you. I get a big, um, 
sense of inspiration from this. When I can attach a name and a face and a, a series of uh, stories and associations with a, with a person of the dimension of Shimon Tzadik, and then I sing that song in Yom Kippur, for me it just it, it, it carries so much more power as a result. Shimon is great, his generation is great, and that's you got to take note of that because that's not what we're going to wind up saying about much of the Second Temple period. Because Maran Nazar tells a great story. A handsome boy um, had very long hair, and Shimon Tzadik knew him, and they knew him as having this long hair, curly, curly uh, tufts of hair, and once the boy, uh, it's you want a model for us, come on. The, uh, once the boy um, appears before Shimon and his hair is all lopped off, and no hair left. And Shimon asks, what happened? And he said, well, I'll tell you, it's really embarrassing. I don't know. It's hard for me to really say this before uh, the Rebbe. Um, he says, I was, I'm a shepherd and I was with my flocks and I went to the well to fetch them some water. And for a moment, my eyes fell in, on the water, and I saw my reflection. And I was struck, just, it was just like a half a second, I was struck at the beauty reflected back at me. And then immediately, and I should quote the Gemara, it's a very powerful Gemara, immediately, I, um, when I said that, I said, Reka, you empty one, why pride yourself in a world that isn't yours, for your end will be worms. Anybody who, ha who looks at his reflection in the mirror and somehow lets it go to his head should think similarly. Yeah, I didn't do this. If I look this way, and you know, a person should think, that's all Kaddish Baruch Hu. Anyway, its end is all worms. No amount of Botox injections can, uh, can somehow salvage the physical decay. And so he, he makes an oath, I'm going to shave you bald. L'shem Shemayim is his reaction. And Shimon is, is, appraises his generation where this is the nature of even the common person in the street, that they, they have the right values. Um, notice also, this, right at, the, right at the beginning of the Greek Revolution, the Greeks who so valued and praised beauty as an ideal in life, what did we say yesterday? For the Greeks, if it was beautiful, it was holy. And for the Jews, if it's holy, then it's beautiful almost the inverse. And the Jews still have the power of Torah in them to know, to have proper values, and to, to, uh, to do things properly. Shimon dies, and the, the Mishnah and Sota tells us that when he dies, Jews no longer merit the Gilu Yashchina. We no longer merit seeing the revelation of the Shechina. This same Mishnah has these strong, seemingly very uh, exaggerated statements about lots of Gedolim from this period. I'll be mentioning a bunch of them. It doesn't mean that the Shekhinah never reveals itself again. But there's some element that Shimon Tzadik was so special that something was gone in the world that it, it itself will never quite return to the same grandeur. The Kohanim indeed start to worry with the decline of the generations, and we're about to take a freefall decline, uh, with, the, with the new decline of the generation. They're concerned, the Kohanim do something of their various kinds of avoda. One thing they do, which is pretty dangerous, anybody? What is one of the things the Kohanim do that's, you don't want to mess this, this one, you want to be very careful how, you, how to handle this one? They enunciate the holy name of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And they're concerned that maybe somebody would come to enunciate the name who's not fit, and that could be disastrous for the world. So they change the halacha, an ahorasha, another, another emergency measure. Um, they, they stop blessing what's called birkas kohanim with what's called the shema mefurash, 
with the explicit name of, of Hashem, even in the base of Mikdash. This is, a, this is explained in the Gemara Menachos. And they use substitutes. Like today, we say Hashem. We don't say what this name is, and there's a question which name is exactly considered when it talk, we talk about the Sheva Mufurash. So at this time in history already, we're starting to feel the effects of the decline, and that's, that's one of the first early manifestations. Shimon dies, his primary disciple, anybody know this? This is really, it's on your Masorah charts, and this is the kind of thing you really should and could know, especially if you've had a history. Who's next in line on the chart? Shimon Atzadik, and if you know the first chapter of Pirkei Avos, which is another thing I recommend that you learn, um, you'll know that his major disciple is named Antikonos Ish Soho. Soho is identified as a place south of Ramat Beit Shemesh today, a mountain in that area, uh, the area where David uh, fought Goliath. And uh, Antigonus is called in the Gemara Tzmora <coughs> one of the Eshkolos. An Eshkol, which literally means like a bunch of grapes, a cluster of grapes, but it's a play on words. Eshkol, we're going to see it again. Ish Shehakol Bo. He's a certain man who everything is in him. What does that mean? He's got Tyra. He's got Yiras Chait. He fears sin. Gimilus Chosadim. He's a kind, generous person. Bli Dofi. No defect. Bli Machlokis. No arguments. Pay attention to that one. We're still alive. Because I, I, when I say we're alive, we're vicariously reliving history. So we're still around in the days before any Machlokis in, in the Jewish people. Up until very, very recently, we've had prophecies. So there's no need to argue over anything. You get perfect clarity from Hashem. And when, when in Antigonus' days, there's still a period without argument that's soon going to change. Um, it's so relevant to be saying this today, given what I talked about this morning. I happened to do a, a, a session. Anybody was here for my session on uh, the reform, uh, the, what they call reform Judaism, the reform movement. You'll hear why it's um, relevant for the declining times. Um, now, what does it mean? He was a student that received the tradition from his Rebbe. This has been the way it's been, but now, because we're in a new phase in history, you don't have prophecy anymore. Now, as it were, Shimon Sadiq, as the last survivor of the men of the Great Assembly, he's got it all. He's got the written Torah, he's got the oral Torah, he's got the vast consciousness. His brain works in what we would consider super, superhuman ways. He now transmits everything to the next in line, the next conduit on the totem pole um, to his students. The tradition was generally they were personally close, they were Mikabel, the student from the Rebbe received the whole tradition. They spent years, in one version, it spends 40 years absorbing the Masorah before they're ready to give it over to the next generation. Um, we find that these early Chachamim we're all on a first name basis. Did that jar anybody wrong? Did we get getting get strange? You know, Shimon and Sadiq, me and Shimmy, you know, like and Antigonus. Antigonus, why the first name basis? Why not Rebbe Shimon and Sadiq? Why not Rebbe Antigonus? Weren't they great exalted figures? And they certainly were. They didn't need that title. Excellent. They were so great, titles not necessary. You find that, in fact, in this period, we're gonna meet, let's say, the likes of Hillel and Shammai. We're going to meet Shmuel HaKatan, little Sammy, right? And the greatness is Dafke manifested in their humility. Shmuel HaKatan, that's who he was, no accolades, no, no fuss, no nonsense. You know, just going about their business, doing great things. The, um, 
Antigonus's generation is described as very learned, but the Greek influence starts to creep in. It causes a decline. Uh, we'll see this, especially in the area of Kohanim and the Ravoda. Let me just finish the thought, and then, then you're on. Um, there's no king. Without a king, you've got the Sanhedrin. You have the high priest. They're the ones running everything. They run communal life. Uh, we're going to see this especially uh, with the case of the Targum Shivim. Um, and the, these institutions slowly become corrupt over the next generations as we as we start to unwind in the story. The story leads us down the down the path towards Hanukkah. Go ahead, Yitzhi. Um, so it wouldn't have been better, I mean, don't take the wrong way, if like, when Jews are like oppressed, we're, you know, we're stronger, and this is what everyone's been saying like the whole year, when Jews are oppressed, we're stronger, but we're, we kind of get weaker, like what's happening, you know, like, no, I don't think they're so. I, well, Greek was very Greek civilization was very attractive. I can't say that this is a comfortable time in history. The Jews were persecuted under the Greeks. But what were you trying to say? I don't want to. I don't want to sabotage your whole your whole comment now. Maybe, maybe it would have been better had Alexander like conquered, you know, Israel. And Right, right. The Jews remain Jews, but then the, the, the society, the culture crept in. That was not good for us. Um, witness, for example, a little side story I'm going to insert now into this uh, that takes place over, starting around now and going, going for the next few centuries, but I'm just going to introduce it now so you're aware of its existence. There's something called Beis Chonio down in Egypt. And it's a plague and a blight on the Jewish people. Shimon Tzadik, when he was about to die, appoints his younger son um, to replace him as Kohen Gadol. His name is Chonyo. But when he dies, Chonyo, the younger son, doesn't know if it's right. He has an older brother named Shimi. Maybe Shimi, Shimi should be the true Kohen Gadol. So Shimi becomes the Kohen Gadol. And Chonyo immediately regrets it. The mission in Pirkei teaches us, don't be too much of a tzaddik. Sometimes if you're too much of a tzaddik in the first time around, it leads you to doing bad things later on, and that seems to be the case with, with Honyo. Honyo regrets it and decides, my brother can't do this job. He doesn't know what to do. So he tricks his, his slightly foolish older brother. His, Shimi doesn't know how to do the avoda in the base of Mikdash. And so he says, here, come, let me tell you. Uh, first, um, do you have your wife's clothes? Because the law is, the halacha is, you're supposed to dress in your wife's clothes when you go in and you do the avon in the base of mikdash, dirty trick. And uh, Shimi says, okay. So Shimi goes and he take, puts on the clothes and he goes in. And the other kohanim see this and they assume that he's, he's somehow mocking them and they're prepared to kill him. Shimi explains what happens. So then the kohanim said, oh, and then they turn to kill Konyo. And Konyo runs away and he flees to Alexandria. And in Alexandria... Can't beat him if you can't if you can't do it yourself. Go and make it up for yourself. He can't be the Kohen Gadol. And while in Alexandria, Shemitzrayim, he builds his own altar, and he offers korbanos. Anybody's distressed here? That's like a bad thing. Well, I wouldn't say it's like a bad thing. Oh yes, it is a very bad thing. It's what we remember the plague, the blight of the first temple period that we couldn't get rid of until finally Hizkiyahu got rid of them. The bamos. It's the same prohibition of Bamos. We're not supposed to have anything outside of Yerushalayim. What were you thinking? You can't do this. Uh, what Korbanos did he offer? He offered what was, you know, he thought was okay. It's Nadavos, voluntary offerings from non-Jews. They did it L'Shem Shemaim, the Gemara Menachos tells us. 
but it's Usser. Uh, that's one version of the story. There's another version of the story that it was Shimi, the older brother who took Honyo, who's then chased to Egypt. That's the foundation of the Mizbeach. It's not clear whether that original Honyo or another descendant of his, um, who may have been also named, it was named Honyo, and he was chased away by the early Hellenized Jews. Um, and brought Kohanim down as refugees uh, from Yasson. We're going to meet a Jason Yasson. Um, he goes down to Egypt and builds what's called Base Chonyo, the house of Chonyo, which actually looks a lot like the Base of Mikdash. It's modeled off the same thing. It was beautiful. It was smaller. It's got its own, as it were, Kohen Gadol in quotation marks. Jews and Egyptians from all around brought korbanos. Of course, they were all illegitimate. They're not the real korbanos. Anybody who offered them was violated the pasuk pentale olosecha b'chol makom lest you come up and bring your burnt offerings any place that you see. In response, Chazal disqualified all their kohanim. If they were kohen down in Beis Chonyo, they couldn't serve the Beis of Mikdash. Uh, they were still allowed to dochen, but that was it. If there were kalim used there, they were unfit to come to Jerusalem. And you might think, well, that's not a big deal, but actually we'll see later on. Egypt, one of the great glories of the Egypt, Egyptian Jewish community was they built beautiful kalim. Uh, but if they were used in Beishonia, no good. Um, it functioned now for about over, for over 200 years and continued even after the base of Mikdash was destroyed. So now we have an institution called Beit Chonyo. It's going to come up a few times in the future. So make a mental note. Register that there is such a thing uh, down in Egypt. What we'll lead with tomorrow is the part that I thought we might get to today, but um, is the story of Tzadok and Baitos, two very unfortunate figures who were not really students of Antigonos. They really were the guys sitting in the back row who didn't quite get the shear. You know, can you picture the, you know, they weren't like in the front row. They're not the front row guys. They're the ones who like vaguely, what do you say? Kind of thing in the shear. And they will start a whole new phase in history. Do you realize that up until this point in history, it's not like the Jews were always perfectly from. But they knew, I, I used this line this morning, the Orthodox synagogue that I don't dominate in is where I would go if I did go. But they went to the shul. They knew that it was right. Even when they worshipped the Bodhisattva, even when they were guilty of the worst sins, they were aware that there was a sham and there was one way of doing things. There was one thing called Judaism that, can, that, that fit the Messiah. This will be the beginning of sectarianism, where there are now going to be whole movements, and reform is just the, later, the latest, one of the later iterations of it, whole movements that actually call themselves a Judaism, that present an alternate version of how you could be a Jew. Uh, they clearly go up and go up against and violate the, the spirit and the, and the practice of Torah. So that's a pretty major shift, and we'll pick up with that first thing tomorrow.